If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What's it like to be a historian on the set of Bridgerton? The hit drama set in Regency England is returning to our screens this week and its historical consultant, Hannah Gregg, joined us recently to discuss some of the real history that inspired the series. Eleanor Evans spoke to Hannah about everything from 19th century balls and 19th century balls and period fashion to the Regency marriage market and the real royals portrayed on screen. And don't worry, Bridgerton fans, this episode doesn't contain any spoilers about the upcoming series. Bridgerton is back, the Regency romance that made such a splash in late 2020. I'm really pleased to welcome Dr Hannah Gregg back to the podcast, who is a historian and historical consultant to the show. Thank you so much for joining us again, Hannah. Hi, Eleanor. Hi. And I'm sure that many listeners will be really eager to hear more about what it's like to work on the show and about some of the the history that we're going to see on screen. But for the uninitiated, can you introduce or refresh us to the world of Bridgerton and why you think it struck such a chord? Well, first, it's really nice to be back because I think when we 
when we spoke last time, it was before season one had come out and we didn't quite know what was ahead of us. And, um, and obviously it really, you know, hit a very big popular audience. So it's nice that, um, that that season was such a such a success um, on screen. Um, so the world of Bridgerton, if you somehow missed it, not one of the 80-something million people who watched season one, um, it is an adaptation of a series of novels by Julia Quinn, um, Regency romance novels, so set in the early 19th century, which explore the kind of trials and loves of the family of the Bridgertons, um, eight siblings, um, and also their neighbours and friends. And the, the drama series follows follows her inspiration and those characters. And there's this gossip sheet, isn't it, that underpins a lot of the activity. Do you think that that's um, one of the aspects of it that really drew viewers in so much? Yeah, I think so. I think that gives us the kind of the narration that um, we probably have in our own heads sometimes um, when we're we're following stories. It's the kind of scandal sheets. I mean, for those of us who been watching television for a number of years it's kind of reminiscent of the American drama Gossip Girl um, where there's this kind of running commentary and people's communications with each other which in the modern world were through telephones and through social media but in Regency London they're through this scandal sheet um, Lady Whistledown's um, society news basically um, which is written as we know by one of the characters in the series whose identity was revealed in season one. Right. Well, perhaps I won't. We won't say who that is just yet, just in case anyone is watching for the first time. Um, and before we go into some more of the real historical elements, can you take us into your role on the show? Um, you've obviously worked on on Poldark, on Gunpowder, on other historical drama as well. What's it like working on Bridgerton? Well, Bridgerton season one always felt quite different to other dramas I, I'd worked on um, because it was dealing with this very opulent, fashionable, elite world of um, the Beaumont, the Bon Ton of, of kind of early 19th century London, which is a world as a historian I'm quite familiar with, but not one really that we often see on screen. Regency dramas tend to focus on Jane Austen adaptations or, um, you know, slightly different worlds, whereas the world of high society London is a world of its own. And then, of course, Bridgerton, the TV series, is a world of its own beyond that as well, in that it's created with a, a kind of a modern sensibility to it as well. It's, you know, speaking to us as a modern audience. And the showrunner is Chris Van Dusen from Shondaland, based in LA. And so they bring a very different perspective to this world of the period drama that we might otherwise, you know, sort of be familiar with. So it always felt different. It always felt different scale. I mean, with the season one, it was the first drama I'd ever been involved with where every single costume was made new, including for all the supporting artists. So just this warehouse full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brand new, sparkling, glorious, technicolored, um, you know, Regency clothes, which is just you could just feel transported immediately and, and everything was was just had that kind of edge of of spangle and glitter and and newness, which you know, when we watch things on television, we like sometimes like our history to look old. But of course, to the people living it at the time, particularly this world of fashionable high society, everything was brand new and modern. So it has a kind of, you know, resonance, I think, for historian as well to be to be transported back to that. So it's always a, um, a privilege and and gives me a lot of insight when I work with film and television productions. Um, I always find it creative and challenging and and interesting. I sometimes feel like I'm a kind of just lucky, curious bystander 
who sometimes gets asked things about history, but I'm having this really interesting time watching all these people do their work incredibly well. So... Yes, it does just sound like a dream job in so many ways. And and to that point about modernity that you sort of just mentioned, you mentioned this the last time we spoke, that while we, we think obviously of people living 200 years ago as obviously in the past, they, they thought of themselves as really modern, as cutting edge, as trendsetters. And yes, Bridgerton does really get that sense across. And as well as issues like that, what sort of other things are you asked to advise on on set? Oh gosh, it can be anything. <laughs> I just, I, I'm always terrible answering this question because I never really remember. I just answer in the moment, and then and then I'm on to the next the next set of queries. I mean, usually, you know, with all productions and, and Bridgerton as well, I tend to first, you know, have conversations when people are in development, developing scripts, and then reading the scripts once they're written, and you know, once they're being revised. So I have a fairly clear sense of the story before you turn up on set, and ideally you should really be able to address all of the possible questions and issues that might come up during filming before everyone gets there. (laughs) Um, So there's nothing worse than a historian turning up and just going, oh my goodness, it would never have looked like this. This is shocking. And then, you know, disappearing again. Um, So we try and sort of think things through before we actually start filming. And then um, on set, there are things that that come up because it it is um, difficult for everybody to to retain a high level of specialist information about everything they might be dealing with, you know. So, I mean, the cast might be riding a horse and also remembering their lines and also remembering all these other details. And and um, so sometimes the questions can be, you know, should we have a bow or curtsy here? How would we greet each other? Who would we see in the background? Does this look okay? Just little things that in the moment suddenly come up again. And um, earlier in my career when I've worked with film and television for, for quite a long time I sort of said to myself well it's not really that useful to have a historian on set and because everyone just gets a bit anxious about getting things exactly right and you know you just need to get on with things and I sort of backed away a little bit but being back with Bridgerton actually has reminded me that sometimes it can be useful to have someone around because it is very difficult for everybody involved to to keep hold of that information in their heads all the time and sometimes you need to offload that responsibility to the historian in the corner who can just say yes no quickly this is what you need to do and then everyone can just get on with their jobs um so I've sort of it's sort of shifted my way of working again actually which is has been interesting for me but maybe not interesting for anybody else <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> no it, no it's, it's really 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 interesting and I think you've mentioned before about this idea of um choice is not mistakes and I think that's I guess really apparent in Bridgerton that it doesn't try to be you know um as as any drama really these days tries to be you know thoroughly historically accurate I'm using quote marks there um but you can help them make choices on screen that will sort of convey messages that otherwise can't necessarily be obvious for a 21st century audience yeah and I think you know everyone's always going to have different opinions about what kinds of period dramas they like or dislike what kinds of histories they want to see on screen and and which ones they don't and and I'm always of the opinion that we should have a variety, that there's a place for the very kind of straight up adaptation of the classical novel that's told as closely as possible to the way in which it was written at the time. There's space for the more creative interpretation or the, you know, the kind of drama that sees itself as moving away from the genre, whatever that genre might be. We could have another conversation <laughs> about whether or not that exists and that it's good to have a good range and that actually what period dramas help us do is ask questions about the past, help us 
think about things. They often make us curious. We, I don't think that as an audience we just consume things and believe it all to be true. I think they make us ask, well, is that what really happened? I'm going to go and find out. Or, or is that a real character or not? And it, it creates a curiosity that's really important and useful. It's about a questioning. And I think it's really valuable to to have that questioning and for people to be able to talk about period dramas. And it's also fine to not like them very much <laughs> and, um, and, and you know, and to criticise and to think, well, actually, I would like a history to be told in a different way. And that's how we continue to, to think about history, to continue to write stories, to continue to do research, to find things out. Because, um, you know, as Natalie Zeman Davis once said, history only asks, answers the questions that you ask of it. So sometimes dramas help us ask new questions, I think. Definitely. And Bridgerton uh, then does do it in such a fun way. As you've already alluded to, the costumes are stunning. It uses modern music in certain scenes. Um, and, and But it does draw on a lot of real history. And I, I wanted to start with um, this concept of, of the diamond of the first water that we also saw in last season, uh, meaning the lady selected as the pick of the season. Did, did that really exist? <laughs> I'm not sure there was, um, I'm not sure those terms were necessarily used in quite that way, that there was one person singled out who's going to be, you know, top for the whole season um it's a really nice narrative device of course because it it helps us identify particular characters whose stories are going to evolve in in a particular way um but yes i mean the degree of element of of historical truth if you want to use that word behind that is there were a number of women who would be celebrated within the season for being a great beauty whose names would be in the newspapers who for whatever reason would be regarded as you know, the most successful in, in that year. And it's because it was an age of of press, of, of newspaper reports, of, of social information, and this kind of world of public performance by this very um, elite, um, you know, privileged world who were parading their status in a public in a public way, and so people talked about them, people celebrated them, or criticised them, or and looked at them and wrote about them, and so in that context, you get this singling out of of particular women and particular men who were the celebrities of their time, whose name was recognised, whose portraits appeared, who who were you know identifiable as as celebrated diamonds of of the season. Yeah. yeah, it's such an interesting play, isn't it, on being observed versus doing the observing, particularly with Lady Whistledown's character as well, exploring that. Um, but the the arbiters are the matriarchs, who I think we talked about last episode, these um, powerful women in society who could make matches and such. But presiding over it all is, is Queen Charlotte. I wonder if you can take us into her court and her influence in this world. Well, I mean, she's given an a world in Bridgerton, which is a, is a is Bridgerton's creation, <laughs> um, really, in that she she's um, she's put at the centre of of this society, interested in the gossip, sort of stirring the pot a bit, sort of um, having a, a degree of um, of influence and um, and a strength of character, which. I think it's fair to say we haven't necessarily seen so much in the histories that are written of the Georgian court. I mean, the court is not usually seen as a particularly exciting place um, within the histories that have been written. But that's not to say actually that we maybe haven't done a disservice to Queen Charlotte and 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 her story and and her her characteristics um, in the history that that's been written so far. I mean, history tends to focus on on the kings. Um, 
and less on their consorts. Um, and there's been some revision of that recently. There's been a lot of work on Queen Charlotte and the princesses and, and you know, from women's history and from um, the people who work on court history at Historic Royal Palaces. So we are finding out, out more about her. I think she's given a kind of glamour, glamorous edge in Bridgerton, which which um, um, we maybe need to sort of, I, I don't know how far we could take that really in terms of how, how she operated within the Regency world that we're looking at. But she is important in that it reminds us that the royal court is, continues to be significant within the London social season, that attendance at court, that having access to these royal circles um, was um, of significance to this world that we're watching, this high society privileged um, community. And of course, the person who doesn't feature in Bridgerton, who would feature in the history books a lot, is her errant son, the Prince of Wales or Prince Regent, who is um, regent whilst his father is incapacitated with illness. And and he um, he doesn't feature <laughs> in Bridgerton. And I suppose he has featured in the history books before because he is a very uh, large, vivacious uh, big character um, whose story has been written a lot. So it's nice actually to move away from him a bit and remember that Queen Charlotte is still there operating in the royal court and having this this influence of her own. Yes, Bridgerton's way of putting her central stage is really, really interesting with the opulence and the lavishness of her court and all the, I suppose, the eccentricities that it includes as well. It's really great to see. I mean, visually it's very different because she's in traditional court dress and so are her ladies-in-waiting and um, so everything about her is slightly separate to the rest of the Bridgerton world that's evolving um, outside the court doors. And if people did want to find out more about those um, people revising her, her world in reality, where would where could people go to find out more about that? Well, there was a really great um, exhibition and there was a book published a few years ago, so I think 2017, called Enlightened Princesses that was run um, at Historic Royal Palaces. So that's Kensington Palace, Hampton Court, um, you know, the palaces that were used uh, by the Georgian court. And they included Queen Charlotte in that. And it was all about this world of, of the women in court, about their their education, their access to the arts, their their patronage of particular people and um, activities. And that was really trying to put them back into the spotlight to draw attention back to them and their contributions to not only to court culture, but to kind of arts and sciences um, in the 18th and early, early 19th centuries. So I think if you look for enlightened princesses, <laughs> you would find out quite quite a lot about them. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But having said that, of course, there is a lot of of, of travel and, and more diverse communities in London than um, period dramas often reveal. And although they might not be living in the West End and always hanging out at the court of Queen Charlotte, there's certainly a lot of people from different backgrounds and different places in London whose stories are still to be told and histories need to be recognised. Hola. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Wonderful. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to have to check it out after this. Um, and as with this world, we saw a lot of dance scenes last series. I'm sure we can expect to be taken in, inside the ballrooms again in, in the new series too. And I wanted to ask perhaps a, a basic question about this period. How did people learn to dance? In Bridgerton, we have our own dancing master, Jack Murphy, who's the choreographer and responsible for all of these amazing dance scenes um, that that we that we see on screen. But uh, yes, Regency families would have had um, dancing lessons from a young age. If you were born into that world of the ton, then um, learning to dance would have been part and parcel of your childhood education growing up. And and even into adulthood, people you know got a dancing master in to practice a new modern dance before the next ball. So they were continuing to refresh their skill and their knowledge. So it was a lifelong skill for some people in a way that we probably, you know, is not part of our everyday experience. But it also meant that um, for those who were born into this world, they had a kind of ingrained education and training in dance. Um, But then what you see particularly in Regency society, is a kind of emergence of other people beginning to participate in the world of the ton who maybe hadn't had that in childhood. And and there's a lot of kind of caricature images of, of, you know, rich middle-class families getting the dancing master in late in life and trying to battle their way through these complicated dance steps. But, you know, that reminds us that there are other people kind of moving into this world as well. Um, but yes, dancing masters were very, very important. You needed one and you needed a nice one. And alongside the dancing, we see a lot of more um, physical pursuits of the day that uh, we perhaps haven't seen um, in the series previously. Horse riding and hunting and lawn games. And how much um, in reality could women take part in these pursuits or were they excluded from them? No, they, I mean, they had a more active life than than we tend to presume. I mean, I think that the stereotype is that women are just sitting around all day on their sofa, passing the time, you know, doing needlework and things like that. And they're kind of significant survival in in museum collections and in archives of what we might call as women's you know artwork which often incredibly done to incredibly high standard sort of fed this idea that they were just filling their time whereas actually there is a much greater degree of physical activity than than we might think i mean horse riding you know for exercise was was very common but also participation in some sports so i mean we see women playing cricket in images from the late 18th and early 19th century um which to me looks pretty ex- exhausting um and um you know bowling um just all other kind of lawn you know lawn sports as well pall mall which we see in um in this 
season of Bridgerton, which I know the Bridgerton fans are very excited about. <laughs> what is Pall Mall exactly? Like, how does it play out? Well, we'd call it croquet today. I mean, it's, you know, very familiar to us. Well, some, some of us, if you play croquet, so it's a lawn game. I'm hitting a ball around the ball, a lawn with a big wooden mallet. Um, so, so yes, I think, uh, you know, people who have played croquet will not find it too um, unusual. Um, but that's what Pall Mall is, is croquet. So in this series, we perhaps see a little more of the gentlemen's clubs um, uh, than we did last series. What were these places and what was happening in society at this stage to make them so popular and evolving as they did? So these clubs are places where elite men go and do things, like gamble, (laughs) drink, have dinner. They're often located in the West End, very close to court or parliament, and presumably they're a kind of stopping off, stopping off point, place where you can grab some dinner before you go to the theatre after you've been in parliament or you need to change your clothes before you go to court and things like that. Um, I, I'd love to give you detailed descriptions of them, but unfortunately some of them remain closed to women <laughs> today. So um, I've been unable to tour them, even though some of the 18th century clubs still survive. Um, I have been into Brooks's as a guest uh, for gin and tonic uh, once in their library. Um, but White's is still closed to women, which is one of the major clubs of the time. So I haven't been able to to walk through their doors. Um, but I have consulted some of their records in the archives. I mean, their betting books survive, which show all of these, uh, you know, big 18th century and 19th century figures placing bet after bet in their in their gambling books from everything about how long the season will last, to who'll be pregnant first, who'll be married by the end of the season, uh, whether a war will break out. I mean, they just, they bet on everything. And it, it suggests, it reveals a world of a man's world of conversation and politics, uh, which is behind these doors of of this club, this clubland, um, that existed in a very in a very particular way. So um, it's nice to tease open some of the doors of that. And um, and yeah, I mean, for season one, we did some filming in one of those clubs, the Reform Club, and um, some of the intimate scenes between uh, Daphne and the Duke of Hastings were um, filmed in its corridors, which I took a particular historian's pleasure in, given that lots of those clubs had been out of bounds to women (laughs) for a very long time. So I quite like them being used for a different purpose today. (laughs) Definitely. And and on that point, then, I know that Bridgerton um, works with an intimacy director. I think you had a conversation with Lizzie Talbot on your podcast, History Film Club, which I really enjoyed listening to. Um, But can you talk a little bit more about, um, I suppose, I guess sex on screen, you know, Bridgerton was, you know, made famous for its, its its raunchiness and its steaminess. And I guess the challenges of of portraying that on screen and also remaining fairly faithful to what would have been the social mores of the day. Well, that's when you need your intimacy coordinator. I mean, Elizabeth Talbot, um, who works with Bridgerton, you know, brings both expertise in terms of how people feel comfortable or how to, you know, manage the kind of the practical elements of filming those scenes with a kind of skill in interpreting what works for the story and what works for the context in which it's it's set. So, I mean, this is when, you know, when you start to work with film and television drama, you get to meet people who have all of this incredible expertise and knowledge that all comes together to make, um, you know, the, the, the whole thing work. There's never one individual and I suppose in that regard you know I'm a historian and I work dramas but often these dramas talk to many historians as well as others too it's not just me um often who are you know involved in some of these conversations um so I leave all of 
that to Lizzie Tolbert. I, I can't speak to that really at all, partly because, of course, there's also quite rightly closed sets and um, it's all done very carefully and, and conscientiously. So, um, yeah, I think, but it's really important that dramas work in a way that, you know, respect the historical context, but more importantly, respect the people who are making those films. I don't think history should be used to justify um particular ways of working um we need to work in a way that makes people feel comfortable whilst telling the historical stories that that we want we want to show um but usefully historically people tended to um have sex with their clothes on because it was quite cold so thankfully that helps us quite a lot <laughs> in terms of making making dramas today and I guess you mentioned in the last time we spoke, there's a lot of um, sort of satire and caricature of the day that does show um, some of these sort of more risque acts happening at the time. Uh, there is some very explicit imagery if you start to look at some um, caricatures and satires um, of the day. I think people are often very surprised that that history is bawdier and um, and yeah difference is sometimes how we we imagine uh, away from this uh, elite world of pursuits then there's also a bit of exploration in this series of of talk of more radical ideas about women's women's rights and i i wonder what sort of movements at this time were considering that sort of thing and w- women's rights and their place in society well i think that um the historians would regard it as part of a, a current of conversation that is you know very contemporary to the moment and also in the decades before I mean, we're in the early 19th century in Bridgerton but really across the course of the 18th century we've seen the emergence of very successful and significant women writers of novelists of, of philosophers of people writing feminist tracts I mean Mary Wollstonecraft is probably the most famous but there are others you know um, whose names have been forgotten perhaps or just not as familiar to us today um, so you know that it's not as though we're injecting a kind of particularly modern idea of womanhood into the background of the story. These are the ideas that were circulating at the time, and particularly in the early 19th century, in the run-up to political reform that we see in the 1830s, around discussions about the impact of the French Revolution. Um, You know, there's a lot of discussion about the structure of society, about the distribution of wealth, but also about the representation and the rights of women. Um, And some of that also comes around the the kind of the place of the royal court. Um, we see a lot of um, kind of discussion about women's rights around the way in which the Prince of Wales actually treats his his estranged wife, Caroline. Um, and so there's a sort of, there is this this current of, of, of discussion that's very contemporary to the time. And it's nice to see that woven in to the Bridgerton world without it being sort of injected, necessarily injected as this kind of modern modern story. It is actually very contemporary to the time. Yes, definitely. Another example of um, perhaps the show showing people the way to find out more about things. Hopefully people will be really curious about that aspect of the history. Um, And in this series, we welcome a a few new characters this season. So we've got Miss Kate and Edwina Sharma and their mother, Mary. Um, And we soon find out that they've travelled to England from what was then called Bombay. Uh, And I wanted to ask, how common was it for people to travel to London at this time from from places that were at the time part of the British Empire, particularly from India? Are there any historical parallels for Kate and her sister? Well, it depends on where in society you want to look. I mean, in, in Bridgerton, there's a... The Bridgerton, the TV series, there's a creation of a, a fictional world that is 
more diverse within elite society than we would necessarily have found um, so readily at the time um, in the early 1900s. So it's a kind of expansion of a, what would society look like if this was possible for all of these people around the world? What would their stories be like and how would those stories be told? But having said that, of course, there is a lot of of, of travel and more diverse communities in London than um, period dramas often reveal. And although they might not be living in the West End and always hanging out at the court of Queen Charlotte, there's certainly a lot of people from different backgrounds and different places in London whose stories are still to be told and histories need to be recognised. And there's a huge amount of travel um, and and movement, not all of it particularly positive or enriching for everybody. I mean, you know, you can't write these histories without thinking about the history of of enslaved people and the slave trade and the flow of goods and the economic impact that has in different parts of the world. But to answer the question, did people travel around? Yes, they did. <laughs> and to answer the question, are there diverse communities in London? Yes, there certainly are, but perhaps not not always as, as beautiful and glamorous and glittering as we see in, in Bridgerton. Um, but I was really interested to see there was an article recently actually in Beeb's History magazine by Professor Derba Gosh about a few kind of elite women travelling from South Asia to London who perhaps accessed some of the world that we see in Bridgerton. Um, so again, you know, once you start to think about it and ask the questions, then you sort of find out, well, who are these people? Um, are there historical precedents? And sometimes it's the dramas that make us ask the questions and the historians then need to answer them. But um, I think we would write the histories in a different way for different communities in London. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I should say there will be a link uh, to that article that Hannah just mentioned at the end of, of, of our chat. Um, so uh, I think I asked you this question last time, but I'm going to ask it again for season two. What was the scene or the set that was the biggest treat for you as a historian to see brought to life? Well, it was really nice in season two that we went to some new places. So I mean, season one, I had a lot of adventures at the Pleasure Garden at Queen Charlotte's Court, all these amazing balls for the first time, um, just the London streets that, you know, we'd constructed for season one. And so for season two, sometimes I was revisiting some of those places, but then also went to some new places too. And, um, you know, one of the most exciting for me was uh, going to the races in the early 1900s. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool to see horse racing <laughs> in Regency, Regency England. And that was a very big part of a lot of people's, you know, social routines and kind of seasonal life, going to Newmarket or to Epsom. Um, you know, men were always disappearing off from Parliament to go and uh, watch whatever horse race was happening at Newmarket at the time and, you know, a lot of gambling and betting. So in the archives, you see a lot of evidence of that. And, and of course, horses was just so profoundly important to people's um, everyday life and existence. And um, so we got a bit more of that in season two. So I did get to go to the races, which was amazing. That's so much fun. And I think a, a real sense, you get a real sense of um, these were occasions, obviously, entertainment and gambling, as you say, but it was a, a, sen- a, a an occasion to be seen. And we see so much of that in Bridgerton, don't we, is that there, it, so many of the social events of the time were excuses to be seen and to promenade. Um, how does that come out in, in the series? Well, you have to wait and see. <laughs> because, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of the, you know, the raison d'etre of high society in Regency London is to see and be seen. And of course, that makes for perfect drama, doesn't it? Because what happens if someone sees something or does or doesn't want something to be seen? And, um, and that's where Lady Whistledown comes in. That was Hannah Gregg. 
Hannah mentioned an article by Professor Derba Ghosh about the real South Asian women who socialised in the ballrooms of Georgian London. If you want to read that article, you can find it at historyextra.com forward slash Bridgerton hyphen women. That's historyextra.com forward slash Bridgerton hyphen women. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 